So welcome. This is week five of decolonial Marxism. And these sections primarily focus on uh, Ujima, uh, chapter 13 and 14 on Ujima and scientific socialism. And Rodney's goal in these chapters is to identify Tanzanian Ujima with scientific socialism in certain ideological essentials. First, to begin to discuss what even was Ujima, uh, the word had been popularized in two contexts. First is referring to the extended family of African communalism, and second with reference to the creation of agricultural collectives known as Ujma villages. The relation between the two is that the Ujma villages were seeking to recapture the principles of joint production, egalitarian distribution, and the universal obligation to work, which were found within African communalism. In the present discussion, the word Ujima incorporates both of these meanings and includes the implications of several policy documents and public plans. And these were primarily the Arusha Declaration and others. Rodney was also very clear to specify that Ujima is not African socialism, and he gets into that later in this chapter. Such a disclaimer may appear curious and even presumptuous in view of the fact that in 1962, Mwalimu Nyerere referred to Ujima as the basis of African socialism. But Rodney insists that there are several reasons for keeping the two concepts widely apart, and we'll go into later exactly how he was making this differentiation between scientific socialism and African socialism. So as mentioned, the main features of Ujima were the collective villages that were being run. The word Ujima itself in Swahili is, means fraternity or family. So it was basically emphasizing the collective village as a, an organizational method of creating socialism. And that was laid out in the Arusha Declaration, which really moved Tanzania away from simply being an independent post-colonial state towards a socialist program and self-reliance as well. The declaration itself uh, in Rodney's mind emphasized that uh, it, it noted that the, the international character of capitalist production in the area of imperialism had placed the propertied class in the metropoles while the greater portion of their working force resides in the colonial areas. So Rodney was basically asserting that the Arusha Declaration was very cognizant of the international stratification of labor under imperialism. He also believed that the colonial sectors were showing varying degrees of stratification and class formation as a consequence of their integration into the international capitalist economy in the first place before even decolonization was occurring. So that stratification was, was advancing and Ujima was simply a recognition of that fact and trying to develop socialism around that fact. And these were recognized in the Arusha Declaration. And he is critical in saying that it had little to say about the development of socialism in the countryside beyond expressing the opinion that concern of the peasant farmer must be a priority. But the document set the stage for the policy of constructing Ujima villages by expropriating the foreign capitalist class. And that was really the main advance that it made was emphasizing that the foreign capitalist class had to be expropriated. Uh, and before then, they had been the major owners of the means of production in Tanzania. Rodney's emphasizing throughout that the, even in, in the cognizance of what was just said in terms of the issue of imperialism, Ujima simply had to be a different type of, of socialism. It was looking towards the socialist organization of peasants. It was seeking to revive and perpetuate the collective principles of production 
the equalitarian nature of distribution and communalism. So not necessarily a socialism in the European sense, but one that was emphasizing the issues of communalism that were not stressed in other contexts. And he was concerned that some self-professed Marxists and bourgeois analysts uh, were transforming Marxism into a barren, dogmatic, mechanistic, and unidimensional theory, which led them to reject Ujima as a form of scientific socialism. And so he wanted to reestablish what he meant by scientific socialism in order to qualify Ujima that way. So he goes back into some of the earlier debates around whether it was possible to construct what could be called the peasant socialism. This is a debate that first took place in Russia. Um, and it was basically proposed by the populists or Narodniks who argued that under feudalism and embryo capitalism, certain communal forms of organization among the peasantry, namely the obshina or mir, uh, which were village communes and the artel, the artisans cooperatives, Russians of a socialist or anti-capitalist bias contemplated a socialist society qualitatively different from that envisaged by their counterparts in industrialized Western Europe. They argued that Russia could avoid the maturing of capitalist relations within its national boundaries and move directly to a brand of socialism where the dominant social class was not the industrial proletariat, but rural peasants living a life that was not far removed from the communalism that preceded insurgent capitalism. So uh, socialism on the basis of the peasantry um, that in other words, uh, for lack of a better term, skipped over capitalism and returned immediately to the empowering of the peasantry. And Rodney basically asserts that in Tanzania, there's a lot of similarities to the preoccupations of the Russians in that time. And that's trying to assert a kind of uh, universal analysis between the conditions of Russia in the 1890s and early 20th century to uh, contemporaneous Tanzania. In doing that, Rodney talks about the Marxist view on the issue. He discusses the fact that Marx argued that the rural community was the mainspring of Russia's social regeneration, but that in order that it might function as such, one would have to first eliminate the deleterious influences which then assailed it from every quarter, so that there could be the strengthening of a, uh, the Abshina and the Russian peasantry, but that would not be possible unless it was protected from the advance of capitalism, which was occurring at that time. Um, but even self-styled Marxists have also made it appear that scientific socialism can be arrived at only on the basis of an advanced proletariat within a given country, and hence only after capitalism has held sway in that country, precisely in the manner as Western Europe. So this is kind of going back to earlier debates we had in this uh, series of readings discussing whether Marxism was applicable to the third world at all. And the contention held that you needed an advanced proletariat, which was basically only possible in Western Europe. This is entering into those debates and drawing evidence from Marx where he seems to have said that that was not the case. There are other quotes where he says that capitalism didn't have to take a historically linear path uh, or universal path throughout the world. But the contentious issue here was whether the peasantry or the rural communes, the Abshina still existed to the degree that socialism could be built out of them. Lenin was also dealing with this in his analysis of the development of capitalism in Russia, 
where he convincingly demonstrated that the capitalist process was far too advanced to think in terms of bypassing that stage. In other words, the creation of a rural proletariat and of landlord farmers, which socialism and rural development was interested in avoiding in Tanzania, had already occurred in Russia by the turn of the present century. So there was a rapid development of capitalism in Russia that Rodney nevertheless doesn't seem to perceive as much in Tanzania. So there's still a possibility of engaging among the peasantry, um, even though in Russia there was a there was a continued existence of feudal and bourgeois landowners, but the peasants themselves had been largely suppressed, and there was a growing rural proletariat um, in that case. And Rodney's also trying to counteract the view of what he sees as the African socialism being advanced largely by Leopold Senghor. Um, Senghor was advancing a model of pristine socialism where he emphasized communalism, uh, but Rodney did not see that as socialism. Um, collective production was narrowly restricted on an ethnic, clan, and geographical basis, and the egalitarian principle of distribution was limited by the low level of production so that societies came nowhere close to fulfilling the needs of all their citizens, hence Marx's description of this stage as primitive communism. And it is certainly not enough for Senghor to sound a warning of possible class formation in the present period, when it is obvious that Senegal has already passed through a lengthy and intense historical experience incompatible with the maintenance of communal forms or the practice of egalitarianism. So Senghor and other advocates of African socialism, Rodney discussed earlier, some of, the, some of the advocates and their contention that class did not exist or class contradictions were not a necessary factor in the development of Africa, and he saw that as a foolish view. Rodney instead pointed out that the socialist world offered an alternative wherein, even though post-colonial states did not have a massive and revolutionary proletariat, there was the fact of of foreign aid technology and development being offered by the socialist world at that time to try and help foster the skipping of stages, as he says. Uh, the skipping of stages involved in the jump from communalism to socialism is only possible in a given society because elsewhere the intervening stages have existed or are still existing. And Rodney discusses uh, Engels who postulated that modern industrial socialism have, has broken the stranglehold which capitalism previously maintained on the world at large. The first condition opens up the technological possibility of building socialism, while the second provides a model and profoundly influences the international political situation. And then Rodney discusses Cabral, who put his finger on these points and explains lucidly that the possibility of such a jump in the historical process arises mainly in the economic field from the power of the means available to man at the time for dominating nature and the political field from the new event which has radically changed the face of the world and the development of history which is the creation of socialist states and rodney believed that other socialist powers particularly the soviet union at the time could offer the technology and the means available for states like tanzania to foster their own socialism as well but that led Rodney to a broader discussion of whether Ujamaa itself, if it was going to be basically tailored to the needs of the developing socialist world at large, could itself be a scientific and socialist process. And Rodney argued that in the context of, of the African experience, that 
a colony or semi-colony within the imperialist framework can never develop to full capitalist maturity. Africa has experienced almost as many years of capitalist development as Europe, but in our case, the unfolding of capitalism has meant historical arrest and backwardness. Thus, one could never expect capitalism to perform in Africa, the historically progressive role it played in Europe. And so Rodney concluded that an ideology such as Ujamaa is scientific insofar as logically and scientifically, it charts this new path forward. In other words, there's no alternative for African countries to develop socialism than developing socialism by skipping capitalism because capitalism cannot play a progressive role in the African context insofar as it's wrapped up in imperialism. Rodney then argued that the argument that Ujamaa is consistent with scientific socialism is made easier to substantiate because of Marx's conclusions with regard to an obviously analogous situation, that being Russia. The Marxist who considers the stress on traditional African communalism is theoretically incompatible with a scientific socialist approach, must bear the onus of proving that Marx's brief application of his own theory was unscientific in the Russian case. So if it's possible for Russia to develop socialism through its own historical tendency of underdevelopment and its own reliance on communalism in the past, then it has to be possible for Tanzania to do the same thing in a scientific uh, Marxist application. But Rodney did have a warning, which we'll explore in the next chapter as well, that African socialism is the inflection which the African petty bourgeoisie have given to bourgeois ideology in an attempt to camouflage from the masses the deepening capitalist exploitation of the neocolonial era in sharp contrast, Tanzanian Ujamaa has begun to make the decisive break with capitalism. In other words, African socialism never broke fully with capitalism. It would assert that there's a possibility of them living side by side. But Rodney asserted that Ujamaa was making that decisive break and thus could be considered an approach of scientific socialism in contrast to the approaches of, of African socialism, which emphasized petty commodity production and what Rodney believed was a primitive communalism. And the conclusion in this chapter is that the insistence on an African identity is a worthwhile corrective, not only to bourgeois cultural imperialism, but also to dogmatic expositions by self-styled Marxist or scientific socialists. Identification with the particularity of experience in Africa is as essential as appreciating the universality of scientific method. When the doctrine of Ujamaa postulates an African path to socialism, it affirms the validity of scientific socialism in spite of the lack of any declaration to this effect by Tanzanian leadership, and in spite of deliberate efforts to distort both Ujamaa and scientific socialism so as to present them as fundamentally contradictory. In other words, Rodney believed that the particularity of the African experience without concluding that it was African socialism, which itself became a, a different political initiative, Rodney believed that while there is emphasis on that history, in particular, the history of colonial underdevelopment, a scientific socialism approach was the only approach that could address that history of underdevelopment in concert with the broader socialist world uh, on a path to socialist development. Whereas the attempts to undermine that and present the two as, as contradictory because Ujima was advancing its own particular interpretation of, of socialism Rodney saw that as fallacious, although, as we'll discuss later on, Rodney's, uh, Rodney's appreciation or his uh, opinion of Ujamaa would change uh, as time progressed. And he then concluded also that 
more rigorous assessment of current ideologies in Africa is also a political necessity on account of the possible dialogue between scientific socialists and nationalists. So again, there, there is more of an awareness that one does not have to discredit one or the other. There can be a kind of integration of these philosophies insofar as socialism in the context of colonial underdevelopment was in some cases taking a, a nationalistic approach in terms of trying to address a history of underdevelopment, but it itself was not nationalism in the terms of the fact that African socialism, uh, which is purely advancing um, socialism on, on a lower basis, on a uh, less developed and, and non-international and non-universal basis, was a uh, reconciliation with a more nationalistic form of developing socialism. And this leads into chapter 14, Class Contradictions in Tanzania. Rodney begins by discussing Samir Amin's uh, essay, The Class Struggle in Africa. And he says, Samir Amin, who is today one of the leading Marxist theoreticians on the African continent, wrote an article in 1964 entitled Class Struggle in Africa, and it was anonymous. This was very significant, demonstrating that at the time it was not even safe for someone to write an article in Class Struggle in Africa. Those were the days when Leopold Senghor and others were parading their theses, which gathered or attracted worldwide attention. Theses to the effect that there were no classes in Africa. So this again relating to what Rodney had just stated, which is that African socialism was actively interested in undermining uh, an approach of class struggle in a, a somewhat universal basis on the, the basis of analysis that there were no classes. So there was no class analysis to be made. And Rodney instead wants to discuss the fact that there are classes in Africa. He starts by, by understanding that it was the capitalist class of Europe or Euro-America, which was the exploiting class of the African continent during the colonial period and still in the neo-colonial period. And any intermediaries between them were relatively unimportant and did not manifest real political presence. But that is a, a tendency that begins to change over time, particularly in the neo-colonial era where these intermediaries or the comparator bourgeoisie would grow as a class. Consequently, when Marxists attempted to look at the interval evolution of class problems, they were seen to be or held to be not just alien but irrelevant concepts in the discussion of African society. But Rodney contrasts this with today, it has become sufficiently generalized that one does not need to be defensive about adopting this particular this posture. For Tanzania, it is striking because here is probably one of the territories where class formation is least developed on the African continent. And yet it would excite no controversy at first sight to raise the questions of class contradictions in Tanzania. And then Rodney concludes that, I think that the classes in Africa are embryonic. That is, they're still very much in the process of formation, but nevertheless, there are classes and they are worth a considerable kind of analysis. Then Rodney wants to discuss what exactly these classes are. He discusses the fact that uh, basically in the colonial context, in the context of anti-colonial resistance, there had been uh, a national unity that prevented significant class differentiation. But in the, in the post-colonial context after independence, Rodney perceived that there could be a rise of, of what he borrowed a familiar Russian term in calling the Kula class. In Tanzania, however, uh, analysts who have been looking around the countryside have discerned that, but Rodney asserts they are straining at the evidence. One kulak doesn't make a kulak class. That is to say that in some African territories, there was that 
small landed class, a landed petty bourgeoisie that was growing. But in the context of Tanzania, because really of the Ujima policies that had been heavily restricted. Um, but Rodney again acknowledges that the petty bourgeoisie, though it's small in Tanzania, is still a class that, that exists. This would obviously play a role in, Tanz in Tanzanian Ujima because it came into the consideration of the principles of Ujima as it was expounding Tanzanian socialism. The weakness of the petty bourgeoisie allowed the specific development which we see in Tanzania, which is the development towards what is called Ujima or Tanzanian socialism. It seems to me we must try to explain historically why it is that this particular African country made that option. It's not merely a choice, a political choice, which any African state could have made. I think we should look for the conditions which made it possible for Tanzania in 1967 to declare so-called socialism, to announce the Arusha Declaration. And Rodney suggests that the weakness of the particular class, which stood initially to lose from such a declaration, is the prominent reason. That particular class being the petty bourgeoisie, which was weak and small enough to not be able to stand in the way of the declaration of, of Ujima. Rodney says that the mass of the people, workers and peasantry, came out in such tremendous force behind the document, particularly the Arusha Declaration, that I don't think that the small, fragile, petty bourgeoisie could ever have had this confidence or that anyone in that class would get up and say, we stand opposed to this option. It would have been the equivalent of committing suicide. And Rodney wants to discuss more about what he means by the Tanzanian masses or the working class. In Tanzania, as in so many of the African countries, the working class was small. It was a transient working class with a high proportion of migrant labor, although there has been a fair degree of stabilization of migrant labor in the post-war years. But the working class remained essentially rural, the larger proportion being on the sites of plantations, largely unskilled, either in the same rural occupation or in other spheres, such as the docks, where they remain unorganized. So there is this small traditional proletariat, if we could call it that, in concert with a rural peasantry that still exists in the country. And Rodney discusses how over time, as the Arusha Declaration was implemented, it was trying to contest the power of the petty bourgeoisie. There was consolidation on behalf of that class. He argues that the Arusha Declaration was positive, but at the same time, the petty bourgeoisie were able to work out the strategy in which they would use this new intervention as a means of enriching their control over the state. So in the context of, of Ujima, even though it was attempting to construct socialism on a collective basis, the state power itself seemed to be uh, taken over largely by the petty bourgeoisie. Rodney perceives this as a process of bureaucratization. He argues that whatever the objective of the exercise of transformation, one thing was certain. The petty bourgeoisie intended to maintain their hegemony over the state apparatus. Indeed, after 1967, they used the new policies as a means of reproducing themselves as a class. In a way, this was almost axiomatic, since they were essentially a bureaucratic formation the moment that they nationalized and began to engage in some forms of control over economic production, the bourgeoisie expanded itself or extended itself into those sectors of economic operations. And throughout the text, Rodney points to some very specific examples. I think tourism is the one he points to the most as an attempt to build some kind of industry, but it was an industry that was highly preferential to the interests of the petty bourgeoisie and essentially is arguing that the approach and implementation of Ujima uh, under the Arusha Declaration, which in its initial phases was not 
impeded by the petty bourgeoisie, nevertheless allowed room within which they could grow and take over aspects of the state and the economy to then develop themselves. And Rodney draws very well on Fanon, I think, to kind of illustrate this point. He says that nationalization has not been enough. In fact, the nationalists themselves, the petty bourgeois nationalists, stopped short at a particular point because of a lack of confidence in themselves. To understand the petty bourgeoisie, again, go back to Fanon and look at the pitfalls of national consciousness in the wretched of the earth. He captured that very well, the lack of confidence in the class that is an outgrowth of another historical experience that never controlled anything in its own right. It didn't control production. It didn't control property. It is derived from the colonial system. It hasn't the confidence to challenge that system fundamentally. It is culturally dependent as well as economically and politically dependent. Consequence, consequently, they find it very difficult to break with this conception of foreign advisors, foreign management, and so on. And having no confidence to break with these concepts, they therefore rationalize it by saying, well, McKinsey isn't really advising us how to be socialists. McKinsey is merely giving us the technological expertise. We will account for the political inputs. To, pack this, uh, to unpack this, Rodney is essentially saying that nationalization or expropriation themselves, which were taken by the Arusha Declaration, as we discussed earlier in expropriating the foreign capitalist class, did not go far enough to address the fact that a petty uh, comprador bourgeoisie would simply come in, take those nationalized industries, invite foreign advisors, foreign management, and so on. And even though there was a, uh, in name, there was ownership by a national Tanzanian ownership, there was still foreign advisors, foreign capital, and foreign management coming in. Specifically, he talks about McKinsey, the consulting firm, coming in and, and nevertheless implementing exactly what they wanted in terms of imperialist machinations over this industry. And that is what hindered the development of a truly socialist, independent, uh, national industry in, in a scientific socialist manner is the invitation of foreign advisors um, to still gain control in a neo-colonial fashion over what is on a, a sort of superficial level a nationalized industry. And this contributes to Rodney's view of the failures of Ujamaa. He criticizes the policy, uh, even though it has a great deal to commend it. It is not merely a form of social organization of economic production. It is meant to be a social whole, a cultural whole. It is meant to be an environment in which the rural producers resume control over their own lives by participating in running their day-to-day -day lives, making choices about fundamental things in their day-to-day -day lives. It intended to put a halt, as Nyerere made clear, to the incipient penetration of the money economy and the class formation in the countryside, it was intended to put a halt to the rise of any Kulak elements and to the accompanying rise of the landless proletariat. What has in effect occurred is that only a very few of the functions of this operation have been successfully concluded. The high incidence of bureaucratic activity, of bureaucratic decision-making within the context of the Ujima villages created a real contradiction between those peasants who are fully aware of what is going on. Once the factories were nationalized once an institution fell under the National Development Corporation and was either government owned or partially government owned. The petty bourgeoisie imagined that was the end of the process and, as we just discussed, would take over the process and then turn nationalized industry into its own industry, invite imperialist advisors, invite foreign capital, foreign management to come in and call the shots regardless. And even though there is a now 
perceived to be a nationalized industry that is Tanzanian owned, it's still uh, for, for better or worse, or to a greater extent, it is still owned by foreign capital. And Rodney concludes with some predictions on the future of what Ujma will look like. Uh, he was assassinated in the 1980s, so he would not see the end of Ujma, although today it has not concluded in, in really a scientific socialist economy or state um, because largely of these contradictions that Rodney was pointing out. And as he says, at the present time, the petty bourgeoisie, although small in number, is in control of the state. It is reproducing itself. It still retains certain links with the international monopoly capitalist world, which would lead to their domination and destruction of Ujima as a socialist policy. But Rodney concluded with optimism, saying that history is, of course, made by people. Marx and his followers understood this. There is a tendency on the part of bourgeois detractors to suggest that somehow a Marxist formulation is talking about things and about abstractions and reification, whereas in fact we were talking about people in society, and certainly history is made by people depending on their particular level of consciousness. In this sense, the contradictions are sharpening the consciousness of the most exploited and oppressed classes, heightening their consciousness, and this must be in the long run a very positive fact. So even though Ujima was failing to consolidate a socialist economy, the petty bourgeoisie was in the ascendancy, and the advances made by the peasantry and the proletariat were on the retreat. Rodney perceived that this would only serve in the long run to sharpen the contradiction, sharpen the consciousness of these most exploited oppressed classes, to perceive that even simple nationalization of industry was not enough to develop socialism as long as internationally monopoly international monopolist capital or imperialism retained control over the country. And I think we can also reflect in the uh, what is perceived as the post-Soviet or post-socialist era um, in terms of the Cold War delineation on what it means for the fact that Rodney was so uh, emphatic about a socialist world being a, a world in which it could develop Ujima and scientific socialism in the third world. And now, of course, we, we live in a world where that is not as extensive as it was in the Cold War with the Soviet Union and the, the Eastern Bloc in Europe. But of course, there are other socialist countries that continue to engage in the third world and develop socialism. And we can think about what that may mean for these the process of developing socialism in a country like Tanzania. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation.